Hey, welcome back to the Backyard Professor videos. I have a review that I want to make of the recent debate that happened last night between Radio Free Mormon and the Midnight Mormons show held at Sean McCraney's church. Congratulations, Sean, for being a terrific host. I was very impressed with that. That's awesome that you did that. You are to be congratulated. Now, I've taken some notes, and I've got a few clips from the debate that I want to share on some of the things that struck me. Now, there's way more. It was a three-hour debate. So there's way more than I can possibly include in a video review, right? But I've written down some notes, and I want to share some ideas on what I saw. Now, I saw strengths and weaknesses on both sides. And, of course, typical with the debate, there are no winners and losers, except perhaps Sean McCraney, for being such a good host. But And I'm going to admit, admit my bias right out, and I will show you why my bias is this way. I really do believe RFM had the more accurate facts and the much stronger evidence, and that RFM went light on these three guys, and they should count their blessings that he did, truly. So first off, the antics of them showing up in bulletproof vests, they, vests uh, is just immature and childish. That was, that was just stupid to do. It really was. That kind of antics, you know, what they should have done. The first impression I received, this is the first thing I thought of, you guys. Well, it looks like the Mormons didn't wear their temple garments of protection, but RFM wore his because he didn't come in with a ridiculous-looking bulletproof vest to a debate, right? Uh, you should have put your vests on your feet because you blew both your feet off. You didn't just shoot yourself in the foot. You blew your feet off. That was just silly. Not impressed at all. Now, their beliefs on the Book of Mormon was interesting because here's the thing about belief. They were asked about their Book of Mormon, and each side received questions concerning the Book of Mormon. But beliefs have nothing to do with reality. And, and that's fundamental. Believers in the flat earth doesn't flatten the earth one inch. Belief can't change or affect reality. And that's just the fact. Uh, believers like Trump, that the COVID virus will just disappear, that didn't make COVID virus go away. Believers like Russell M. Nelson that a worldwide fast would solve the problem of the virus. And then when that failed, he called another one, and that failed. In fact, each time after the worldwide fast, the virus just skyrocketed. Belief does not change reality. That's fundamental. You have to grasp that. As Mormons... I'm under the impression that you really don't grasp that basic fact. And it mars your credibility, right? I don't think you know what the Holy Ghost is or how it works. I'm, you didn't convince me at all. 
uh, Kwaku wants to know what no means, and he talks about that later in the debate. And yet they turn around and say what they know, uh, but he doesn't know what it means. I mean, the inconsistency of Kwaku's stance is blaringly obvious. You didn't impress me, kiddo. Uh, simply repeating the church mantra that the Holy Ghost has testified to you that the Book of Mormon is true and Joseph Smith is prophet, that does nothing for me. Um, I know the church has told you that it does, that the Holy Ghost does testify to those. No, it doesn't. You don't know what the Holy Ghost is all about. I'm just not convinced. That's the way it is. Because others in the world testify that the Quran is true, and that Allah is God, and that Jesus is not the Son of God, but merely a prophet, etc. And everyone testifies that the Holy Spirit testifies to them that they're true, and no one else is. So, until you guys get all of your act together with all the other religions and figure out just how the Holy Ghost actually works, the rest of us just, we're not going to buy your show. That's the way it works. Now, artists. Now, uh, Radio Free Mormon, RFM, described how the artists of the Book of Mormon have done such a ridiculously stupid, phony job of showing Joseph Smith translating by looking at the plates instead of sticking the stone in a hat and putting the hat to his face to block out the light and then translating, right? And the other three agreed and said, well, you know, we can't, we can't, go with artists because they misrepresent so much. That's irrelevant. It's not the artist's fault. The church blames the artists, but it's the church who used their artwork anyway, without correcting them. So this one falls at the church. The buck stops at the church. Only when evidence on the internet became so overwhelming and so many people spoke up and told the church that that's just wrong, then it changed the art. That's not impressive. When you're forced to change it, why did they ever go along with it in the first place? Who knows? But they were wrong to do so, not the artist. You don't get to blame the rape victim. You don't get to blame the artists either. That's how this works. So, now, Kwaku has a, a blurb that I know he does not grasp. Now, part of the problem, and uh, RFM pointed this out, and I don't think the kids ever figured it out. The, the Midnight Mormons just cannot quite see the point that RFM is making. I can, because I'm his age. Uh, they misunderstand that what we were taught in church, what we were intimated to be like in church, and what we were supposed to believe and disbelieve and do and don't do in church, has changed to something different that these younger generation Mormons, like the Midnight Mormons, are now living through. 
So there is a fundamental disconnect between we older generation and our experiences and you younger generation and yours. I think that is part of where the friction comes from, but I have a, a clip on on Kwaku that I do want to share that I would like to make a comment after we see that. We know that Joe Smith used a seer stone and he put it into a hat. And we know that that tradition came from Europe. It came from John Dee, a counselor to Queen Elizabeth. He was the, the high-ranking member of the royal family who created the Enochian language and the Monas Hieroglyphica. He's the same person who took the Solomonian tradition from the Knights Templar that, that date themselves back to King Solomon. These symbols of folk magic came from Europe. A lot of you are looking at me like, who is John Dee? That's because they don't tell you who these people are. John Dee was one of the people who coined the term New World and was directly responsible for the 13 colonies actually coming to the Americas. We can actually trace how this folk magic happens and actually how it has Judaic and Kabbalistic roots. The ring I'm wearing has a symbol that is Solomonian, coming from King Solomon. It's the same symbols that we saw John Dee have. It's very similar symbols to Joseph Smith's Jupiter talisman and things of that nature, which were part of this folk magic used to translate. If you think the magic or the weirdness or the stones of the translation negate the divinity, then you do not know history. You do not know European history, and you don't know um, a Solomonian history or Kabbalistic history. You need to look into those things because they're incredibly important and we should not be cynical in writing off an important part of who we are. Now, for what it's worth, I completely agree with Kwaku, but it's not us he should be saying that to. It is the Mormon leadership. Because all that information that Kwaku just shared with you right there in that clip, in my teenage years, while I was preparing for my mission, in the 1970s, you would have been excommunicated for saying what Kwaku just said. That is the information that the church was excommunicating people for teaching. Joseph Smith involved in magic, you've gone into apostasy, you've lost the spirit, and they excommunicated you. Ask the Tanners, if you think I'm bluffing. Really. We were advised do not read the Tanners because they are in apostasy and they teach Joseph Smith dabbled in magic. And that's just false. Joseph Smith never had or used a Jupiter's talisman. That's a lie. A satanic lie. And so, what Kwaku now thanks to the internet expose of the hidden history that Mormonism kept from us, what Kwaku has shown is that the truth-tellers were the ones who were excommunicated by those who were hiding and lying about the history, namely the church leadership. They're the ones Kwaku needs to take to task not those of us who are pointing out that that's the history that has been hidden. The church still won't put that in their church manuals and give you the full 
experience of Joseph Smith's use of magic and the folk magic. They still don't like the subject, and they will not give it to you in priesthood meetings, sacrament meetings, Sunday school, whatever meeting you want to talk about it, they won't like it. So there's one of the problems. Now, RFM responded to that very person perfectly. Uh, the kids just don't know how the church repressed the information or emphasized everything except what Kwaku said. Uh, Joseph Fielding Smith denied Joseph Smith ever used the seer stone. Now, this is a critical point in RFM's analysis of part of the fact that the church has been lying through hiding and misinterpreting the historical evidence. Not once in all of the evidences RFM presented in this three hours, not once did the Midnight Mormons respond or refute those facts of history that RFM brought out, the majority of which the church has been hiding. Let's take a look at RFM's clip. I think the main problem here with what Great Boo is saying is that just because he knows something about the history of the folk magic that led up to Joseph Smith using it in early 19th century America, as well as many others, doesn't somehow make it true, or make it work, or make it real. And even in the 1950s, when Joseph Fielding Smith, apostle and church historian, who wrote copiously, wrote about the seer stone and said, Joseph Smith did not use the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. And actually, he made a very good argument. It turned out to be wrong, but he was making a good argument. He said, why would God provide a Urim and a Thummim with the gold plates for the purpose of translating them, which we read about in the Book of Mormon. That's pretty much obvious, right? And still allow Joseph Smith to use his seer stone that he used in treasure digs. Why would God go to that effort and then let Joseph Smith use, I think Joseph Hilding Smith called it, an obviously inferior method of translation? And he had a very good point. The Midnight Mormons did not touch that argument with a 10-foot pole, and we can see why. One, they aren't a, a familiar with it, and two, because they can't refute it. All of the evidence shows RFM has the historical verification on his side, thanks to the internet now, and how the church has now finally been forced to admit all of this. So that's very interesting. Kwaku, who says that we don't know the history, is way off base. We are the ones who brought the history out to the Mormon church, and they excommunicated D. Michael Quinn, the Tanners, and others who dared broach the subject of what really happened. See, it unnerved Boyd K. Packer so bad, which RFM did discuss, and which, again, Midnight Mormons did never refute, 
that he didn't even trust the historians. So this is the problem. And when they say that faith gets in the way of common sense, RFM said that. Faith gets in the way of common sense, and, and what happens is we make excuses for the brethren, but they should be held to a higher level because, one, we're not allowed to even criticize them, and two, they are apostles for Pete's sake. They shouldn't be making these kind of mistakes, so they are rightly held to a higher standard. That makes perfect sense. So, Kwaku then said that magic just doesn't go away. Um, regardless of the secular argument, he, he is really against secular society. Everyone is going to hell in a handbasket in the secular world, except Mormons, of course. They're the last bastion of hope in Kwaku's paradigm, because they believe in a divinity that loves us. Secularists lead to nihilism. I see such, such amateur, immature, black and white thinking. Of course, that comes from the milk toast Mormon sixth grade level instructions for their entire lives. They don't want them to get beyond that level, right? So they have this ridiculous black and white thinking. But Kwaku really goes on a rant for people who want continued spirituality. So they go into the bookstores and they grab tarot books and crystals and stuff like that. You're never going to get take away from spirituality. But the assumption is that that is what RFM wants to do and is doing. And in point of fact... That is a false assumption. RFM is simply pointing out the actual historic reality of what actually happened and why the church has hid that historical reality because in the first place it doesn't build faith. So the brethren have to lie and hide history in order to falsely build up your faith. And the Midnight Mormons seem to be okay with that, but they don't like RFM exposing them for being charlatans in that respect, and that's just too bad, because I'm on RFM side all the way. If you have to lie to build faith, then your faith ain't worth spit. Let me show you a small clip by Kwaku and explain what I see. Now, one where the odds are stacked against us, one where the, major the minority hold almost all of the wealth. That particular clip is really interesting because he was saying the secularists are destroying our society. And they are causing all of the divorces. They are the ones breaking up the families. They are the ones that are causing nihilistic tendencies. They are the ones, they are the reasons why so many people are committing suicides, robbers, whoredoms, etc. And in that clip he said they are the... The problem is now the minority is getting all of the wealth, and it's not fair, it's not to our advantage. He's blaming secularist billionaires. 
But did you notice what he left out? His own church is richer by far than the entire Catholic hegemony of nations amassing their wealth in Europe, Australia, and the Vatican, as I showed in a previous video. So, Kwaku is being just a little bit hypocritical, I would suggest, in ignoring his own church being one of the absolute top amassers of wealth, refusing to use it, admitting on sitting on it for a rainy day, and he's blaming secularists for the problem, when in fact his own church is acting entirely like a secularist corporation when it comes to acquiring wealth, something the Book of Mormon forbids men to do, or they lose the spirit. But you won't hear Kwaku go that route, because of course he wants to defend the faith, and he's doing a very poor job of it, unfortunately for him. In the discussion on polygamy, I thought both sides were rather weak on it, both uh, the Midnight Mormons and Radio Free Mormon. Uh, the Midnight Mormons, all Kwaku did is he said, well, I come from a polygamous family. My mom was a polygamous wife of the guy and uh, in a small cult, so he did acknowledge that it's cults that practice polygamy. Uh, he didn't equate that with Mormonism, though. No, of course not. No, the church is exempt from any kind of criticism like that. But his whole point is irrelevant. And then he goes on to say, well, none of us were there, so we should have charity about polygamy and RFMs ad hominems and his lack of historical proof of the problems involved with polygamy, etc., show that we should be a little bit more charitable. And then the other two also jumped on that and agreed with that. But RFM is simply showing that Joseph Smith lied to Emma about the polygamy. He cheated on her. He made sure, and RFM mentioned this too, he said that God called other men to missions so that Joseph Smith could marry their wives while they were still married to their husbands. And uh, these guys tried to hum-haw back and forth about it, and it just didn't carry conviction. The point is, the whole polygamy issue is as ugly as it ever was, and it is now worse because... Once again, the brethren have been caught lying about it. And now, that, that is brought out a little bit more on the church essays, where finally they have been virtually forced by the proofs of history that Kwaku and Cardin and the other gentlemen don't know about that Joseph Smith even married 14-year-old girls, right? Well, that the church denied forever, until just recently in the essays. So this theme of polygamy, now what, what both sides missed was that Joseph F. Smith, in the Reed Smoot hearings, early in the, at the turn of the century, the manifesto happened in 1890, they were sworn off from practicing polygamy, and what the Mormon leaders did is they flat out cheated. They sent colonies of polygamists down to Mexico, they sent them up into Canada, and they sent them hiding down in the southwestern states so they could not be caught, so that they could continue living polygamy 
all the way up into the 1900s, and when they were called before Congress, they perjured themselves. They lied to Congress saying they had stopped polygamy, and they hadn't. And they did that for expediency's sake so that they could become a state, Utah as a state. So again, it wasn't revelation. It was pressure and expediency that forced the church to finally become more truthful. And this happens with almost every single cotton-picking doctrine and social experience that we live through. If it wasn't for that pressure, the Mormons would still be in the outdated 1830s, right? Something also that you had mentioned, uh, Cardin, which was a classic apologetic trope which is that when you get blindsided because the church has not been telling you stuff, has been hiding it, what was it that uh, Elder Ballard and uh, President Oak said in that face-to-face -face devotional promo, right? Says, uh, oh yeah, some of these questions are uh, really, really tough, right? And then uh, Elder Ballard says, those are the questions that we'll avoid. He actually said it. That's when you say, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said it. That's what they do. They avoid the tough questions. They give you the milk before the meat. The milk before the meat, isn't that funny? The funny thing is, I've lived for 40 years. They never get to the meat. It's always like that 1980s commercial. Where's the beef? Well, they keep promising it. It's perfect, okay? It's always our fault. That's the deal. Whenever we don't find out about stuff, it's our fault. Because we didn't study enough because we didn't find the stuff that the church is hiding from us. Nothing is ever the fault of church leaders. Nothing. If you are a faithful Mormon, and you do what you're supposed to do, and we know this because the church leaders tell us that it is wrong to what, everybody? Even if, by the way, just so everybody can hear it, because I know we're recording, what everybody, I think everybody said was, it is wrong to criticize the leaders of the church. Even if the criticism is true. So it can never be their fault, which means it always has to be ours. And we wonder why there's so much depression among the Latter-day Saints, so much anxiety, so much toxic perfectionism. And now in one of the truly funniest clips that I found in the whole debate is what Cardin said a little later on in the debate, which I'll share with you right now. And uh, I mean, even the audience caught on to how blatantly silly the Midnight Mormons are being. And if they're not being silly, then they are still grossly uninformed, even though they tried desperately hard to make it appear like they knew what was happening and RFM is out to lunch. RFM had all the verifiable facts and historical references which they never refuted, and they presented none. What they presented was their hopes their feelings, 
their desires, their wishes, their ideology. In other words, they gave us the programmed Mormon brainwash pap and pablum. I gotta say also, I, I don't I don't know where this don't criticize leaders of church came from. I think we're taught Get it out of your system. Get it out of your system. Um It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. So I I really do hope that that answers Cardin's question uh, with where we get this idea of it's wrong to criticize the church leaders even if the criticism is true. It comes from uh, Dallin, one of the church leaders. Yeah. The remarkable thing is, in discovering the truth that they are hiding history, or they're lying about some kind of a doctrine, or they're changing things, or they are threatening us with our membership because we don't believe like they do or whatever, and we are exposing their lying, their cheating, and their manipulating of the historical record, they come back saying, you shouldn't criticize us. Well, if you would quit saying so many stupid things, if you would quit producing such ridiculously biased policies against people that you don't like, gays, lesbians, blacks, etc., then you would give us something more praiseworthy rather than materials to criticize. So, we're sharing our observations and not necessarily criticizing. And if our observations are coming across as criticism, then you need to change what you're saying and doing. If you want praise, then for hell's sake, Start doing stuff and saying stuff that is praiseworthy because we are watching and we're not going away. That's pretty simple. Am I raising the bar too high on the brethren? I might be, you know, but tough luck, gentlemen. Sucks to be you. You're the ones that insist on us all standing up in the chapel every time you walk through in your glory. You want to be held to a higher emulation and ooh, ululation and be looked up to and be on a higher standard and level. Then you've got to start living it. Again, I... I kind of fear I might be raising the bar too high. So we'll see, right, in the future. So, But Cardin, that's where the idea comes from. Yeah. <laughs> it's really critically important to see the effects of the naive simplicity with which Mormonism trains its members, not in critical thinking, but in faith.
in belief, especially believe what we teach you and church-approved literature. They want to tell you what to think and what to believe, not in how to think. And there's many examples I have of where there is just no critical thinking applied and enormous amount of misunderstanding. Those are what I want to deal with for the rest of this video. Something also that you had mentioned, uh, Carvey, which was a classic apologetic trope, which is that when you get blindsided because the church has not been telling you stuff, has been hiding it, what was it that uh, Elder Ballard and uh, President Oak said in that face-to-face -face devotional promo, right? says, uh, oh yeah, some of these questions are uh, really, really tough, right? And then uh, Elder Ballard says, those are the questions that we'll avoid. He actually said it. That's when you say, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said it. That is such a great micro lesson for all of us. The leaders don't want to deal with the hard questions. Don't you see that's why the rescue missions, all of these phony rescue missions, are always failures? Of course. Because the brethren don't have the answers. And apparently, I mean, based on what they have taught from Joseph Smith's day on, neither does Jesus. Now that's why this is serious. The Midnight Mormons think we're mocking and that our mockery and merrymaking and leading to nihilism, <laughs> which is hilarious, because that's not where RFM led me at all. I never went to nihilism. Yeah, I went to atheism, but those aren't the same at all. Atheism just means I don't believe in your God, right? It doesn't have anything to do with nihilism. And besides, I'm not an atheist anymore. I actually do agree with Kwaku where he says the divinity in people is really important to maintain. That is the only point. All of his diatribe about the secular society leading to divorce and disaster, chaos, mayhem, and Armageddon, and all that silliness. Uh, that's the immature black and white thinking that Mormonism has brainwashed him into supposing, you know. Every problem he points out in secular society is also in the Mormon church. He just doesn't see it yet because he's blindsided by the false narrative. But let's take another look at another clip that I thought was quite instructive. Fault. That's the deal. Whenever we don't find out about stuff, it's our fault because we didn't study enough, because we didn't find the stuff the church is hiding from us. That's the deal. Remember the five rules that the church plays by? I can't remember them. I hope somebody here will. Bill? We're going to hide stuff from you. Then we're going to lie about hiding stuff from you. And finally, at the end, if you talk about the stuff we're hiding from you, we will hide you. That's what the church does. That's the rules they play by. 
So it is always our fault because it is never the fault. Nothing is ever the fault. I'm sorry, I'm getting exercised. Nothing is ever the fault of church leaders. And that false narrative just doesn't work anymore. The leaders can't push that one anymore because they have so many faults now. The internet has brought those out. Let's keep watching. There's some other real interesting stuff. Notice how in this important clip, uh, again, he presents specific pointed evidence with references of which the Midnight Mormons never responded to, and they simply don't understand. It's an exquisite piece of information. I believe that leaders of the church, just like me, for 30 some odd years, knew this church was true and want to bring it to other people and want to keep members from leaving the church because your exaltation depends upon it and the, the exaltation of converts depends upon joining the church and being faithful. Well, that's not going to happen if we tell everything that we know. That's why we're not going to tell you, speaking for the leaders of the church, we're not going to tell you the negative things of the church. Not because we're being malevolent, but because we're doing it for God. Because only in this church can you be saved. Negative information about the church will keep people from coming in and cause people to leave. Therefore, we will tell only one side of the history, the correlated, whitewashed, sanitized version of the history. And Boyd K. Packer was nice enough in 1980 or 1981 in his talk the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect when he was talking to all the teachers in the church, all the CES instructors, all the BYU professors, and he said it. He said, there's all this negative stuff about the church. You are not to talk about it. And you don't repeat it. It's like disease germs. And maybe you'll catch it. You only talk about the faith-promoting side of the church. And that's the context for the famous quote, not all truths are useful. So they are on record. And, and that was published as the first article in BYU Studies after he gave the talk. So they are on record. This is the plan. This is the agenda. And then Boyd K. Packer told all the professors and CES instructors, if you don't go along with me in hiding this stuff from the members of the church and your students, then you will be looking for new employment and you'll, prob you'll probably be spending eternity in a very warm place. I... I don't know. I, as I'm listening to what you're saying, I, I feel like you have unrealistic expectations of history. So isn't that a remarkable confession on Brad's part? Unrealistic expectations of history. No, what he means is, we have unrealistic expectations of hoping the brethren are truthful with history. Because time and again in this debate, RFM demonstrated whether it was M. Russell Ballard, Boyd K. Packer, Joseph Fielding Smith, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, it didn't matter which leader of the church, he demonstrated time and time again that to ask them to simply tell the truth, quit lying and creating a false, phony faith and a narrative. Can lies build true faith? I wish RFM would have asked the Midnight Mormons that. 
That would have been sweet. So I'm asking him now, can lies build a realistic, proper faith in anything? I just don't think it can. So let's keep looking, and I've got some other clips I'll share with you. I think this uh, comment by Kwaku is extremely interesting because it's showing how badly he is misunderstanding everything RFM is doing. Kwaku just can't wrap his head around it. It's very interesting. Listen to this. I think it's also interesting that really the first time RFM answered a question tonight is when you had to push him to answer the question. You've danced around almost everything presented. There may actually be people doing what Cardin or, or what Brad says they were doing, but RFM's not one of them. RFM has not presented anything unsubstantiated at all by church leaders. He's been giving them references all night long, as I've been showing in these clips, and they can't respond to them. And what RFM is bringing forward is pretty damning. And that's what has these guys thrown off balance. They don't know how to handle the specific, the, spe, the specific, boy, uh, the specific, exact pointed, detailed information that RFM is giving about so many different church leaders. And that's got them stumped. So they're going back to generalities. Well, there are some things that are unspecified or else he's doing a straw man or whatever. RFM didn't do any of that whatsoever. And observe also when you watch this uh, debate, they never responded to one item that RFM ever brought up about the specific information of hiding parts of history, of changing history, of threatening people if they taught the bad stuff. They never responded. And RFM brought it up at least, I mean, there's at least eight or nine different times when he brought specifics to the foreground, they wouldn't touch it. Fascinating. Let's take some more looks. Here is an absolutely picture-perfect example of what I was talking about. RFM giving specific, pointed details and references. And this is not an ad hominem or a straw man. This is directly relevant to his theme. And they don't know how to handle this. They never responded to this either. Let's listen. And even in the 1950s, when Joseph Fielding Smith, apostle and church historian, who wrote copiously, wrote about the seer stone and said, Joseph Smith did not use the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. And there was another instance where the kids just, you know, they, they tried to give the impression that, well, we know about all these things. We know about seer stones and polygamy and 
we understand about the Book of Mormon, and we understand about prophets, and history, and revelation, and oh boy, do we know all about the Holy Ghost, yes. And then they turn around, and they don't know diddly spit about how the church really functions. Pay attention to how specific RFM responds <laughs> to Cardin's really amateur understanding <laughs> of history. <laughs> this is incredible. The fact that the Nicene Creed was voted on. It was voted on. The bishops voted it. And I don't think God communicates to man by vote. Instead, by revelation that becomes inspired scripture. So, on the basis of simply not being as revelatory as voted, and by the way, that's my only real problem. And the idea that if you're going to form a gospel that is going to be the restored church of Jesus Christ, you will be different than all the other existing sects of that time that are based upon a vote. All of them trace their lineage back to some kind of schism or some kind of break that happened in the first two or three centuries A.D. based upon some of these creeds. That if you believe God is the head of the church, you can't outvote God, which would inherently be abomination. I understand that's a very heavy word. He has no clue. Here's RFM's masterful response. I think it's really, really funny that we're talking about voting as establishing God's doctrine as a problem in the early church councils. I went out and I taught what I was told to teach on my mission to Japan, which is that we have a prophet on the earth today who receives revelation from God just like Moses did, and then he gives it to the people. And then over time I started finding out that the same church that teaches that actually is also giving me hints, President Eyring, that they do the exact same thing. They get in their councils, they talk about things, it moves around the table, they continue to talk about things, eventually they all vote the same way, and that is the definition of revelation in the LDS church today from President Eyring. He was nice enough and candid enough to accidentally let that slip in a press conference. And I think it might have been when uh, President Monson was called as president. I'm not exactly sure. This is a crucifixion. So on the one hand, we have these guys saying, oh yeah, we've known about all this controversial stuff all the time. I mean, heck, we were taught about it in seminary and all that. And then they turn around and they make complete historic blunders like that. Right? So it's not a very good performance for the Midnight Mormons. This is a very interesting confession by our friend Cardin. I don't know how to refute some of these straw man arguments because they... Because they aren't straw man arguments, Cardin. They're direct, historically referenced arguments. The temptation is, oh, well, we're going to make an excuse for this apostle for doing something wrong. Or like, you know, Elder Ballard, right? Uh, Elder Ballard says that nobody in the church, none of the leaders of the church have ever hidden anything from anybody. Oh, what a whopper. That was like four Pinocchios on that one. 
and we make excuses for them when actually what we should be doing is holding them to a higher standard because they're apostles of Jesus Christ, or at least they claim to be. It's material like this that the Midnight Mormons now recognize that we are just no longer going to make excuses for the shortcomings and the deliberate attempts at manipulating, deceiving, and then intimidating and threatening from church leaders everybody else for not accepting their version of history or not finding out the truth of it and gaining the testimony that they say is allowed. This is what is bothering the Midnight Mormons. Because, and notice how they add all of that, well, that leads to nihilism. It doesn't do anything of the sort. <laughs> or that's, that's being mean against the church. Or, you know, it's, it's like it, one of the apostles actually said, oh, can't we give Joseph Smith a break? Or give Brother Joseph a break, you know. Give him a break. <laughs> now that the real information is coming out, I mean, Joseph Smith directly lied outright in public, saying, oh, what a thing it is to be accused of having many, many wives, when all I can ever find is just one. And at the time he lied that, he had like 12, 13, something like that all of them hidden, the vast majority of them in the Relief Society. <laughs> Boy, what a gutsy dude, yeah? So, I mean, deliberate lies like that. And they say, well, you're tearing it down. You're, you're being critical and you're being cynical. No, we're being truthful. And the truth leads to more light. Now, granted, the light people are being led to is not the light of faith and truth of the brethren. Of course not. But if you have to have faith built on such a phony basis and a weak basis, then it's not worth keeping. There's better light beyond Mormonism, and it is the further light and knowledge the Father promised. But it's up to us to gain that light. And yet you have expectations that the entire church should have a solid narrative the entire time. No. No. They still can't get it right. We don't expect a church with a solid narrative. We want a truthful narrative. Apparently that's too hard of a thing to ask for from Mormons. You see, they're building a straw man. That's a beautiful example of a straw man right there. He's misreading RFM because RFM is presenting with him really solid historical evidence that the narrative they've been spoon-fed has been carefully crafted in a manipulative way. And the manipulation has been demonstrated now with actual evidence from the church leaders themselves and their own words, as well as the church historians, that it's not actually very accurate in so many regards. So, I mean, stuff has been left out. Stuff has been added on. There's been spin and twist on things, etc. That's not what we want. And then they have, 
they have the audacity <laughs> to say, hey, the Holy Ghost has testified to us that this is truth. <laughs> but you see how they are so nervous when verifiable historical information comes across that shows they're off base. This is a remarkable illustration of that. Let's take another look at another clip. I think that's an oversimplification of it. We should not criticize church leaders, not because they're never wrong, but because being critical is unproductive. I think that when we look at, and I know it's funny to hear me say that, when most of what we do is be critical, right? Like, hey, it was nice to see that he caught himself in a moment of hypocrisy on being critical, wasn't it? But being critical is unproductive to who? is my question. Being critical is never unproductive. Critical means careful, thorough analysis, bringing in all plates onto the table, not just the butter dish and pretending you have a seven-meal dinner. Right? So, they are attempting, it appears to me anyway, they're attempting to have their cake and eat it too. Well, we want to be careful, but not too critical, not because they're wrong. We are being critical precisely because they are wrong. Among other things. True story. And we're entirely justified for this reason, the evidence establishes the basis of being discerning, being critical, being careful, comparing what they say with what this record says and this one and this one and this one. And when we put it all together, we have a completely different picture with a completely different consequence than what the church has always taught about many, many instances in history concerning either spiritual manifestations or the establishment of a particular doctrine or a unique practice or a heinous act by Joseph Smith or Bigham Young or whoever that has carefully been uncritically sort of left out, etc., that's very productive in order to get to the truth. Maybe not so hot for a faith-promoting narrative. That's not interests us. We're not interested in faith promotion. We're interested in reality. Let's take a look at another clip. No, this is a great yeah, question. No, and I well, hold on. This is a great question. I want the audience to understand this so they understand what I view as the ethics of apologetics. Ad hominem attacks, generally taboo. We need you know, to do them all the time, even tonight. Okay, let me we need to understand what they are, though. Generally, if you decide to attack the person instead of the argument or the substance of that argument, it's what's called the false argument. Okay? It's, it's a dodge. Unless you are calling into question 
the person's credibility or a conflict of interest. The Wikipedia page article has the definition on your phones when you leave. So the only time I am ever calling into question somebody's personal life is if I'm calling into question a conflict of interest or credibility. Like I believe, hold on, I, believe, I, I, I disagree, I disagree with what's going on. Hold on, hold on, hold on, let me finish. So I disagree, saying, so you're saying that I Quaker disagree did with Quaker. engage in ad I, well, I disagree. That's let me important. finish. Okay. I disagree with Quaker bringing that up. Benjamin Franklin defended the people that were in the Boston Massacre, so I believe every person, no matter how John Adams. Go ahead. Okay, exactly. So, I... I will call into question financial gains based off of destroying people's faith. I Pretty heated moment, yeah? So he will call into question financial gain based on destroying people's faith. But will you call into question financial gain up to and beyond hundreds of billions of dollars? by falsely building people's faith? Hmm? I will call into question people who want to impugn historical leaders of our church for sexual, what they perceive as sexual indiscretions, when they are engaged in plentiful sexual indiscretions themselves. Okay. So apparently logic is not Cardin's strong suit. Because he doesn't like it when someone whom he thinks has sexual transgressions to impugn church leaders who have had sexual transgressions. So he thinks that by calling attention to someone else's sexual transgressions, then that means the church leader who's been impugned with actual historical evidence is now in the clear? Is he serious? <laughs> Joseph Smith had enormous sexual transgressions. Those aren't going to go away if you point to sexual transgressions of someone who points out Joseph Smith's problems, those don't just go away, Cardin. You're ignoring the historical evidence through an invalid ad hominem. Completely illogical. I don't quite follow why he's bold enough to state this publicly Except the fact that he, he just does not grasp logic. And my follow-up is that, so what I hear you saying is your job is to present the negatives of the LDS Church. You see how easy, even Sean McCraney misunderstands what RFM is doing, and, and as well as me as far as that goes. Our job is not to present negative criticisms against the LDS Church. Our job is to find the truth that they're hiding. In the process of discovering the real truth, it absolutely impugns and refutes 
the lies. Now, that's viewed as negative only from someone who loves to imagine the Holy Ghost has told them that the false narrative is true. In every other instance that I can think of, presenting the truth and correcting an error has always been seen as being a positive. Yeah, it's disruptive. The truth is sometimes not very peaceful bringing. Just read about Jesus in the New Testament, folks. So even Sean McCraney misunderstood what RFM is doing. And by implication, misunderstands what I'm doing with my videos, too. We're not presenting negatives. We're presenting actual, uh, more accurate, full contexts, sure. And in the process, we demonstrate where the leaders deliberately admit to either cheating or fudging on a source or leaving something out or whatever. If that scene is a negative, the onus of guilt does not fall on us for pointing that out. The onus, the onus of guilt falls on those who are perpetuating the sin. And there really is much more of incredible interest in this particular debate that I can't cover in my video review here. Uh, I want to wrap this up because I can't make this really too long, but I do have some pertinent points of some observations that I have made through the course of observing its, uh, its incredible instructional value. I've seen this debate now on video several times in order to try to review it. So here is my wrap-up of my observations. The thing about the Midnight Mormons is that they've been taught to testify to their carefully groomed message, and they're not aware of it. Now, it's a careful selection of facts, leaving out many disturbing facts and putting in only the good, coherent ones. Then they're told to pray about that. And they have, and they believe, that they are testifying of the truth. They're doing what the church tells them, in other words. So when RFM presents the actual truth with pointed, excellent historical evidence, they fall back to generalization, saying to pray about things, and their general testimony. It's entirely unconvincing. They think it's important to defend the leaders because that's what they've been told that they should be doing. And they imagine RFM is attacking them and the leaders in order to guide them to nihilism and atheism. That's not what RFM is doing, nor any of the rest of us who are critiquing religion, Mormonism specifically, in many cases. He is simply showing how the leaders of the church have been dishonest with the history and the facts and the doctrine. And they've never described the consequences of the leaders' manipulative actions and words, their beliefs and their revelations. Mormons are not taught to pay attention to critical 
to critically think and see what the consequences are. They just want you to pray, to get a testimony, and uh, believe what the leaders have taught them. That's the downside of their approach. They don't deal with facts, they deal with testimonies. If you've been presented with false facts and then asked to pray about them and get a testimony, and that testimony is only supposed to include inclusive certain select items, you can see how carefully the grooming is going on, can't you? It's a primed, controlled testimony. It's based on misinterpretations, deliberately, of facts in order to build your faith. And then you pray about that, and the Holy Ghost confirms it to you that that false narrative is true. That invented narrative, even, is true. So it makes sense that when someone comes along with the more accurate facts, along with the uh, consequences which Mormonism is trying to avoid, you know, like Joseph Smith marrying 14-year-olds and having sex with them, then it really does cause confusion. But that's not RFM attacking the church and causing the problem. It's the brethren, the church, in the first place, lying about it, grooming you for a specific kind of a testimony, and the kind of answer the Holy Ghost will give you, and the people believing what the leaders tell them is truth, instead of thinking it through and asking genuine questions. In many instances in this debate, the Midnight Mormons, on being presented with real evidence, they fell back to the idea of, well, you need to pray about this. No. There are direct contradictions and problems here. You need to carefully and critically examine it and find out the consequences of the actions and words of the leaders of the church in those essays on its website where they refute earlier God-given revelations of eternal truth to those earlier prophets and their revelations from the Holy Ghost. What are the consequences of that? Mormons are taught to believe what they've been told to and follow that. So what are the consequences of the essays on the church website? The Holy Ghost doesn't give final, eternal truth and doctrine. Brigham Young taught Adam God, he, the blacks in the priesthood band, etc., the book of Abraham, the polygamy issue on those church essays on the official church website. All of these eternal principles, or else eternal revelations of fundamental truth, these were given by the Holy Ghost to many tens of thousands of saints through the decades. They lived them, they believed them, and they testified of them. But now the essays today, sanctioned by the brethren on the official church website, have said that these were just those prophets' opinions back then. That's not 
how they know their own revelations, but today's leaders take those revelations and they change them because they are uncomfortable with today's church leaders and the social situation we find ourselves in in our country. What about the Holy Ghost's revelations to the tens of thousands? None of it was real. That's just simply dismissed by today's leaders. And so I dismiss your Holy Ghost testimonies. Because in several years, your Holy Ghost testimonies are going to be dismissed by later prophets when the social situations become too uncomfortable for them to accept today's revelations by today's prophets, even when given by the power of the Holy Ghost. Today's revelations are tomorrow's opinions. No real true doctrines or revelations are ever truly given. They're only convenient opinions of men mingled with Scripture, claimed to be confirmed by the Holy Ghost. And it's the sanctioned church essays now that show us this. This isn't anti-Mormon material. This is official brethren-sanctioned materials now. This is so radical that hundreds of Mormons were alarmed and they came on the message boards and they went and warned the church at the website. They said, hey, anti-Mormons have hacked your website and they are posting anti-Mormon material in essays on your website. You need to take those down. That's how radical those essays are. Because those essays today, who are finally becoming more open, more honest, more all-inclusive finally, because they've been caught with their lies, and now they have to be forced to open up, that used to be the anti-Mormon stuff. That was the stuff in my teenage years that we were not allowed to read. That is the stuff that they excommunicated. D. Michael Quinn for the magic materials. The Tanners for the historical materials. The September 6th for the feminist materials. And on and on and on. Now all of that material is agreed by the church to actually be the reality. The truthful church led by the Holy Ghost in revelation from God has been excommunicating those who have been telling the actual truth while the church has been lying. That's the consequences of making a false narrative. We no longer have the anchor of revelation. We can't trust it. That's not being anti-Mormon. That's being pro-truth. So I entirely understand where RFM is coming from when he says, I do not seek to deconvert anyone to get them to leave the church. He said Mormon church. I will say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That has never been my personal goal either, actually. I don't care whether you deconvert or not with the information that I'm sharing. I don't have to present missionary zeal to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. MB 
because you're wrong, you have to leave Mormonism. <laughs> I've never said that. I never will because that's not my goal. What we're doing, this has nothing to do with it. I am exploring alternative explanations with alternative evidences, those that have been deliberately hidden from us to see what the consequences are of an actual, more complete, whole, truthful narrative. An accurate picture. Now, this is what Mormonism, based on how the leaders have spoken and acted for the last several decades, this is what they do not want you to think through the full story and understand the consequences. See, that is why they have to manipulate the history, the doctrines, the practices, the beliefs. It is a dishonest approach. It is an incomplete approach. What you, what do you get when you include what was hidden and see the greater whole history, the doctrine, and the practice. What kind of picture do we see? Instead of the carefully selected, biased, partial, controlled view that only certain biased individuals want you to grasp, to say the Holy Ghost is going to give you a testimony of that partial, biased view, that's utterly ludicrous. That is precisely why like RFM, I am exploring the more complete picture. Because if we're talking about truth here, if we're talking about eternity, then I can't possibly believe God is disappointed or stupidly angry with us going beyond the bias, selective interpretation, views, doctrines, history, what have you, that the church leaders and the correlation committees present and gaining a more complete, whole, accurate version of history, of truth, of doctrine, of practice, and the consequences for that, for real knowledge, not just belief, that we've been told that we have to accept from someone else's view. That's what upsets Mormons, who want to think that they have absolute certainty and eternal truth of just a partial biased picture, because the Holy Ghost told them that. That's why testimony doesn't mean anything to me anymore. The Holy Ghost is simply not going to give you absolute conviction that a manipulated, deliberate, incomplete picture is the truth. I just don't buy that. That's just not how God of truth would work it. Telephone break. <laughs> it's my good friend Kiss Kuman. I've got to take this. Hang on, I'll be right back. Kiss Kuman, how you doing, man? You just interrupted my video. Good job. Okay, that was a good, good friend of mine. Good to have friends in high places. He's a college professor in early Christianity in the Romans, so that was good to hear from him. So, what was I lying about? I was on my wrap-up of this video, review of the great debate. So, I was explaining why testimony doesn't mean anything to me anymore, because the, the Holy Ghost 
it's just not going to give you absolute conviction uh, the manipulated, deliberately incomplete picture is the truth. I, I just, I can't buy that. I just can't. That's just not how a God of truth would make it. It makes literally no sense, nonsense of a testimony. Well, what you do with the information we are sharing with you is entirely up to you. Our philosophy, if you will, our idea, our hope, is that you keep on exploring. There's so much more information to learn, whether it's spiritual, scientific, historical, religious, it doesn't matter. Keep going, because the, open, the world will open up to you as you get rid of the shackles of the church-approved literature. You'll see how shallow it all is. You know, the kids, the, the Midnight Mormons, were offended because RFM says, I've graduated from Mormonism. Well, I mean, all you have to do is compare any of the priesthood manuals or the Sunday school manuals with some of the biblical commentaries of, of scholars to see that RFM, it's not a joke. Uh, the sixth grade level is giving it more credit than what it deserves in many respects. And that's so unfortunate. It's, the thing is, it's so unnecessary. Well, when the membership begins to let the leadership know, yo, hey, dude, we're sick to death of your sour milk. At least give us some carrots and potatoes or something. You know, then maybe they'll change. Who knows? Or you can just vote with your feet and your mind and learn the truth yourself. That's, that's what we are doing. Hugh Nibley himself said that uh, so often. The saints just stop their learning and trying to learn because they think they already have the truth. And that is, of course, the worst path you can possibly take. That's just not the way to do it. Uh, Joseph Smith said, people fly to pieces like glass when I try to get them to learn anything new. Yeah. So, uh, Mormons haven't changed at all in that regard. But they've agreed implicitly to be dumbed down uh, to just and only the bare-bone basics by the brethren. And the problem is, Mormons appear to me to be content with a partial manipulative truth. I wasn't, I'm not, I never will be. I don't get that impression from RFM that he is either. Uh, we now know that the Mormon claims that God has taught them they have the truth and that it's accurate. That's just patently false. That just can't possibly be accurate. Midnight Mormons are entirely off base when they accuse us of being cynical and nihilistic because we are including what the brethren have hidden from us. And we are exploring options. Because we learn further light and knowledge that Father has promised, which the church hides from us, and we are sharing that truth. That's the idea. It's no fun if you can't share it. It's a blast to share it and see how it helps others' lives for the good. So if it lands you outside of Mormonism, well, then that's the consequences of having truth. Truth will always be more valuable than any attendance 
in a social order or a corporation. That's just, that is fact. Uh, the truth is always disruptive. This is another thing we have to come to recognize about the truth. Perhaps that's why it so terrifies the Mormon leaders. I don't know. Uh, my proof of this is simply Jesus. I mean, he caused the whole damn society to boil in his day, didn't he? Uh, he didn't just give them cute platitudes and testimony. He reasoned with them. He refuted them. He healed some of them. He argued with the church leaders. He discussed with them. And he presented evidence against them to show when he thought they were wrong. See, us following Jesus' example within Mormonism is not an evil, even though they want you to imagine it is. That's, just, that's baseless. Uh, it's not a sin, it's not wicked, it's certainly not cynical or nihilistic. Y yes, in some respects, I will agree, it is disruptive. Mormons finally have to start examining carefully instead of just listening and believing what they're told. Well, that's the essence of what actual truth does, though, for you. It turns on the light bulb to the lies. The manipulated truth is offended. That's not anything we can help. If manipulated truth is given over to prayer so God can confirm you in your bias, then doesn't that appear to you, at least, to make prayer just simply confirmation bias? Well, that's not very useful in life. It's not evidence of objective eternal truth in right action, correct doctrines, and belief at all. That's part of the Mormon paradigm, and I see no valid reason to accept it, especially since I'm finding truth which is actually quite different than what Mormonism claims the truth is, even within Mormonism. I'm finding interpretations of the scriptures, because I study the Hebrew and the Greek, different than what the brethren understand with their lack of the Hebrew and the Greek. That doesn't mean I am in the nihilistic cynic mode because I show my view is better than theirs. That's a false accusation. See, doesn't that kind of smack of desperation? To me, that makes them appear quite desperate. They have no reputation, so they start accusing you and labeling you. See, that, that's typical, right? Mormon says the Holy Ghost will teach you all truth and testify to what you're praying about. So here's some pertinent questions on that theme that came to my mind. Then why didn't the Holy Ghost simply testify to Emma? That polygamy was true, and she needed to live it. Right? Seriously. That an angel with the sword came and threatened Joseph Smith with his life because he put off polygamy for like nine months. It fi he finally came along and he said, live it or die. And then Joseph Smith turns around and gives that poor young girl just a couple of days to make up her mind. You know, it, it's crap like that, that you don't get in church, that helps you determine truth, or where you're going to put your allegiance at, right? Yeah. Why didn't the Holy Ghost just save all of the lying, the manipulating, the backhanded, sneaking around, 
oaths sworn in secrecy behind closed doors, marrying other men's wives and daughters, and other stuff like that. I mean, where is the Holy Ghost in all of this? It just disappeared? <laughs> For Pete's sake, man. The Holy Ghost simply could have testified to everyone of this critically crucial practice to all of them, just exactly like they claim it did with the Book of Mormon to them, right? If there was any time ever for the Holy Ghost to testify to the people, it was now. This is for their eternal exaltation and living together forever as families, and yet the Holy Ghost is nowhere to be found. That's really, honest to goodness, odd, isn't it? I, I, I'm really sincerely serious. So this is the eternal gospel covenant path of polygamy we're talking about, right? Joseph Smith could have presented it to Emma. The Holy Ghost could have testified to Emma that it was true, just like missionaries claim happens with their investigators today. Well, why didn't that take place, right? Joseph Smith was killed because he was lying, hiding, and manipulating lots of people in Nauvoo and the surrounding countryside and the neighboring towns concerning polygamy. And the newspaper article of John C. Bennett exposed his lies with the actual truth. Now, this is fascinating. It was the actual truth. There is not one lie in that newspaper. Not one. I remember being quite shocked when I actually took the time to read the newspaper. You know. Joseph Smith stupidly tried to hide his lying by destroying the news press. Right? I mean, and it's true. I mean, you have to realize the Mormons got this part of it right, at least. John C. Bennett was abusing polygamy. He, was, he did end up committing adultery and causing chaos and mayhem. And then he exposed Joseph Smith was doing the same thing. He got it from Joseph Smith, right? So here's another question that I believe is seriously pertinent. Why didn't the angel show up with a sword and tell John C. Bennett to knock it off. Yeah? You ever thought of that? Has any Mormon ever thought of that? Look, if polygamy, if polygamy, and this was fundamentally taught back then, man, if it was the entire capstone in the Temple of Exaltation, well, then where's the protection and help from heaven? Forget personal free agency and choice. It didn't matter to the angel concerning Joseph Smith's free agency. He showed up with that sword and said, live it or die, dude. You know, so don't give the cheap, ad hoc, milk toast excuse of free agency. God doesn't give a damn about the free agency when it came to polygamy, if Joseph Smith's story is true. So the truth killed Joseph Smith because of his lies, his manipulations. Actually, his lies, manipulations, and cheating 
is what caught up with him and got him killed. But you don't hear that in Mormonism, do you? No, they put a really spectacular spin on the actual historical facts and consequences of how Joseph Smith handled polygamy. But when you just stop and think it through for a few minutes, there's an entire different picture that you see every time. The newspaper telling the actual truth was not being slanderous or cynical or nihilistic. It simply told what was happening in Nauvoo. Joseph Smith was the one causing all of the problems, the rumors and the hullabaloo. And then he destroyed a free American press of free speech. See, Mormons put a spin on this. I'm not being cynical in showing the true cause of Joseph Smith's death. Because when you really do find out Joseph Smith is the criminal bad guy, then that's not being cynical. That's presenting the history that Mormonism has hidden and manipulated and lied to us about. And they have to. Because all they want you to have is faith in their version of their faith-promoting story. Duh. Right? They don't want actual historical truth and knowledge of reality. That's why they invoke faith, because the evidence doesn't support it. The real issue here, too, is then they have the audacity to turn around and tell you God himself will tell you the truth of their narrative by the Holy Ghost. So read-only church-approved manual. We've seen that. Church-approved materials. We've seen that said several times. Podcasts and web pages, etc. There is where the problem lies. To falsely accuse RFM of being cynical and leading you to atheism and causing society to break down as Quaku so stupidly did in this debate, is the Mormon way of sticking their fingers in their ears and screaming, la, 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 And then that way they don't have to deal with the truth. Right? I'm not impressed. Elder Anderson recently said in a priesthood session of conference to give Joseph Smith a break. Now, why would I do that? Joseph Smith says he can get us into a higher place in heaven. Yeah, he's got a higher law, he's got a higher standard with which to live. And he can get us into a higher place in heaven than we can do on our own. So he has a higher law, a higher standard, so I expect him also to live by that higher law and the higher standard. Is that too much of me to expect from him? Am I cynical in thinking that way? I don't think so. Not even. That's being rationally realistic. He's made claims. And so therefore also, he is not exempt from those claims. So why give him a break? Where does that idea come from, right? Why would the leaders even take this approach? It's because they have manipulated the record. See, if Joseph Smith is going to claim a higher standard, then we're going to hold him to it. 
truth and honesty gets us to heaven, then we damn well better see it also in Joseph Smith and today's church leaders and in their policies. That simply makes sense. If he has to lie, manipulate, cheat, steal, whatever, in order to get that higher standard, then he would be kicked out of a secular college for doing that with his studies. You know, I'm thinking this through. It dawned on me. Hey, the secular standard is higher than the Mormonism spiritual standard is. Now, that's something that the Midnight Mormons didn't notice in their diatribes. See, they like to say, that's all right, that's right over there, those secular atheists, nihilists, those cynics. They lead to divorce and problems in society and car wrecks and puppy dogs getting chased by cats and all sorts of innuendo silliness. But is that the fact? No. That's just idiotic on their part. If we give Joseph Smith a break, and the church leaders' manipulative natures give that a break, and just simply, meekly, submissively follow along, because, of course, that's what they say to do, how is that being a higher standard than the secular standards of honesty in our studies? of writings and research, integrity in our relationships with our other students. No plagiarism of anybody else's research and writing. There's no cheating on tests. And yes, there is steadfastly attending college. You pay attention, you do your homework, you ask the questions, you actually learn through a dialogue between you and the professor, and you ask tough questions, church doesn't encourage that. <laughs> right? You probe harder for better answers. The church doesn't encourage that. They'll allow only certain limited kinds of questions but not others. Dallin Oaks in the Mark Hoffman episode didn't like it when a BYU student asked a question, so he made him rephrase it until he liked the question, and then he answered that one. <laughs> no, Dallin. The student does not have to rephrase the question. Yes, Dallin. Just answer the damn question. You see how they use their authoritor to intimidate those young students, right? Come and intimidate me, Dallin. Let's rock and roll. I got questions for you, cowboy. You think you bad? You think you bad? They do not want you asking pointed, serious questions. Let's keep them to questions like, who was Nephi's father in the Book of Mormon? So reassuring meat answers and the mysteries can flow, right? It's all phony. It just is. They do not want to try to explain the consequences of what Joseph Smith was actually doing, what he was actually hiding why and how he was sneaking around, swearing people to secrecy, banging other men's wives and daughters. 
keeping it all secret from his own wife. Sure, they talked about polygamy in seminary, but not the details like this they didn't. I went to four years of seminary. Don't try to butter me up with your boring bullshit, boys. I know how seminary operates. And your intimation that you got all the details that you've read on the FAIR website, I call bullshit. That's a snow job, and I'm not falling for it. Not a chance. I know better. They want you to have faith. They want you to believe, not examine, investigate, compare, and think for yourself. They want you to pray, not to analyze. They certainly do not want the tough questions, and RFM mentioned the gentleman who admitted that, one of the church leaders. Yeah, it's in the debate. And they go out of their way to avoid those. Well, if you ask the tough questions or present testimony-damaging knowledge, then they falsely accuse you of being cynical, atheistic, under Satan's influence, and in apostasy. See, this is their attempt at shaming and intimidation. And it doesn't work because we have better information thanks to the Internet. So they love to say that you're too weak to live up to our higher standards because you just want to sin. Notice the cheap pop psychology here. I love it when they do that. That's so hilarious. That's a brainwash, right? That's immature, cheap, amateur Mormon pop psychology. And they think it works. Well, that's where the evil lies, actually. Because after all, if God is a God of truth, right, let's give that the benefit of the doubt. Let's say God is a God of truth. Okay, we, we accept that premise. And he's not a God of lies. All right, then why on earth would we give Joseph Smith a break when he's supposed to be God's prophet leading us to a higher heaven, but instead we discover he's just manipulating, lying, hiding, teaching false doctrine, truth, and practice. That is why Mormons get upset and they begin to falsely accuse you of all sorts of silly stuff when you give a more accurate, properly historical, contextual evidence. All of it. Boyd. Not the partial Boyd K. Packer whitewash. They say, don't criticize the brethren. Well, when the brethren start acting and saying things uh, accurately and producing loving policies, not bigotry against people that they don't like, then we can stop criticizing. You see, they want to tell us to stop criticizing. We will when you give us something to start praising. You get to do the changing, brethren. They are the modern-day Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, and hypocrites. The counterpart of the church in Jesus' day, of which Jesus also refused to accept. I can't do any better than follow Jesus' example, can I? Right? Well now, 
One last thing. The most poignant part of the entire debate, truly, uh, was when Cardin spoke and he was genuinely sincere. You could tell by the tone of his voice and his body language. You could tell by the nature of what he was saying. This was Cardin's most sincere moment. And I want to share this with you. I'll show you this. The only real problem I've had with most of tonight, and, and I, I feel bad because you're genuine and you're intelligent. You're very funny. Um, I I kind of lament that in a different context I think we could have been friends and I'd like to envision you as such because I, I think we kind of have that obligation to view each other as C.S. Lewis said, as eternal beings, right? So I'd like to think, at least in this moment, as best I can, benevolently, um, and say, I don't know how to refute some of these straw man arguments because they seem to be based on a genuine lived experience other than to testify that those weren't my experiences. That is genuinely heartbreaking to see Cardin show us in his most sincere moment that he can't be friends with RFM because he doesn't think like Cardin does, he doesn't have the same faith, and he doesn't believe like he does. The Mormon brainwashing has shown Cardin that he can't be friends with RFM. This is the proof of the ultimate failure of Mormonism. It isn't a gospel that gives you the heart and soul of love for all. You're under obligation to view others nicely, but they're lesser than you are, and so you're not allowed to be their friend. This is the ultimate failure of Mormonism. And unfortunately, Cardin, in his most sincere moment, left the cat completely out of the bag. What makes this so poignant is that he was not trying to insult anyone. He was being complete. It was his most real moment in the whole debate. It wasn't showmanship. It wasn't grandstanding. It wasn't trying to win a point. He was genuinely talking to RFM, and he said, I wish we could be friends, but we can't because I'm Mormon and you're not. That's, that's the fundamental problem with Mormonism. You are lesser than in their eyes, 
if you're not one of them. Now, I, I actually do not use this concept, but that's how a cult brainwashes you into thinking. And I know Mormonism is real touchy when you call it a cult. Then stop acting like one. Stop brainwashing your people into having such horrendously short-sighted spirituality that Cardin demonstrated. Mormons cannot fulfill Christ's commandment, love the Lord your God, love your neighbors as yourself. The Mr. Rogers approach is certainly the more Christ-like approach when he says, hey neighbor, I like you just the way you are. No judgment, no prejudging, no pigeonholing and categorizing. Oh, you don't dress like me? Well, you're lesser than I. I mean, Kwaku is the most self-righteous, judgmental, young little immature Mormon prig I have ever seen in social media. That's obviously not what Mormonism wants you to end up like. But if you end up like Cardin, you still fall short of actual love. And that's so sad. So, uh, to end this review, I have a couple little fun items that I'll show with you, I'll share with you and show you, and then, uh, and then I really truly will wrap this up. But for my own sake, for my own say, <laughs> for my own sake, I think RFM held the day. I do. Yes, there was weaknesses in it. Uh, yes, both sides had some gaffes. And but overall, uh, McCraney had a couple of assumptions, but overall, McCraney did outstanding as a moderator. His assumption that uh, by taking people out of the faith, it's a scorched earth policy without giving them something to fall back into or giving something to replace. That was McCraney's version of fighting against Mormonism through his anger. I don't think that's, I mean, that's his assumption and I disagree with it. Anyway, I've expressed myself on that, so. But this isn't really humorous. <laughs> Thank you. And it's not really funny. It's very serious. <laughs> Thank you. So let's treat it seriously. <laughs> Thank you. And you do not know history. Pure truth. <laughs> Thank you. To God, I know that one of these over here, one of these people, I think it might have been Quake, was talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Within the context of the Mormon Church, please don't make me laugh. All right. The Mormon Church is not about bringing people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about bringing people to a relationship with Russell M. Nelson. Pure revelation. <laughs> Thank you. So it's been a lot of fun reviewing this great debate. 
Uh, I am more convinced as ever that Radio Free Mormon is going to continue being my brother for sure, and I'm going to accept him just like he is, just exactly like I accept Quaku, Brad, and Carden, just like they are. Just because they're brainwashed Mormons doesn't mean I don't see them as my friend. Truly, I, I'm not saying that to be a smart aleck or to get a dig in on any one of them. I don't see anyone on the planet as my enemies, so far as I can help, So, especially those who think differently than me. If you base your friendship on that, you're shallow, right? You end up being hypocritical. That's the problem with that approach. That's the whole problem of the Mormon approach to, to social issues. Anyway, um, thanks for watching my Backyard Professor videos. I have a lot of fun making these. I, uh, I, I think uh, RFM should do more debates. Debates, however, really don't solve a lot. Um, they aren't designed to help you see truth versus falseness, etc., but they are fun to have. Uh, it does cause some interaction. You actually do get to see a different side of the people in the debate, etc. So that's what makes it fun and interesting to watch. Uh, I enjoyed this debate. I've been reading online materials on uh, philosophizing on where RFM was weak in this and that. When you're debating, you can't think through the philosophical distinctions of Plato's noble lie. I mean, you know, come on. It's a debate. You know, you got to make your points. It's a bullet point presentation, right? Overall, I do sincerely believe the Midnight Mormons did better than I expected they would, so that was a bonus. Good job, you guys. RFM did better than I thought he would. Overall, the entire debate just was very pleasant. It did go a little long, but I'm glad it did because uh, we got a full informative uh, evening. And, and, and I personally really like that. So thanks to all of you for putting on this debate. Uh, Sean McCraney, I am impressed with you. Truly, truly. Uh, I'd like to meet you someday. In fact, I'm even willing to interview you or you interview me or whatever. That would be a fun, that would be a fun thing to do. I know I've got uh, John DeLynn whom I'm going to have an interview with someday, hopefully, if we can ever put ourselves together. And yes, Radio Free Mormon and I are going to do other interviews as well. And I will begin to interview other people also. So, overall, thanks a lot for everything. Thanks for watching my Backyard Professor videos. Be good, do well, have fun. I, I know I say that quick, but I really do mean it. Be good, do well, have fun, and be kind. Uh, kindness is the way. I promise. And I will see all of you in the next Backyard Professor videos.